to Numbers chapter 30. You'll find this if you're looking in your pew Bible on pages 229 and 230. 229 230. Of course, it's on your large print sheets as well. <clears throat> Numbers uh, chapter 30. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers uh, chapter 30. Starting on page 229 in your Pew Bible. Hear now the word of God. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. If indeed she takes a husband, while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand. And every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will release her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes 
which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. I take it that many of us are aware of, familiar with, the 1947 flick, Miracle on 34th Street. Remember? Chris Kringle, who thought he was Santa Claus. Remember? And uh, the DA, the district attorney, Thomas Mara, who said he was nuts, tried to get him uh, uh, confined to, uh, to an insane asylum. And Mr. Gailey. Remember the Mr. Gailey, who was the defense attorney? And in the hearing, do you remember that Mr. Gailey calls his witness, which was Thomas Mara? And the DA said, who, me? And he said, Thomas Mara Jr. That is to say, the young son, about six years old. You remember that scene? And um, so Thomas Mara Jr. goes up to the witness stand, and the judge the kindly judge leans over and says, now Tommy, you know the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie, don't you? And Tommy said, everybody knows you shouldn't tell a lie, especially in court. Now actually, little Tommy had it right, did he not? It is certainly the case that we should never tell a lie and that we should always tell the truth. But it is also the case that there are special occasions when it is particularly important to tell the truth and to emphasize the seriousness of that matter. And that's one of the reasons why there are things that we call, that are, oaths and vows. Oaths and vows. And today now, as we continue to look at the third commandment and what is required, we see today especially that the law requires the reverent use of oaths and vows. The law requires the reverent use of oaths and vows. Now, we're taking these together. They are, they're not the same, as we will see, but they are similar. They are related both are occasional acts of worship. So you don't do this at the drop of a hat. You don't do this every week. It's upon occasion for specific reasons. As I said, they're very similar. Uh, they both involve the telling of the truth. They both very distinctly involve God, using God's name. <coughs> And furthermore, they are often done in public. One of the chief differences of the two is that a vow is voluntary. A vow, voluntary. That's the way to remember that. So let's look today, first of all, at what oaths are and some things about oaths. What is an oath? So that's the first question then. We're going to deal with what who, why, and how with regard to taking an oath. What, who, why, and how. So what is an oath? 
Now, in the Old Testament, the word oath is shabuah, which is used 28 times. But the related word shabah, swear, is used 154 times. So an oath is calling upon God to affirm the truth or to confirm, to confirm the truth. There are two basic types of an oath. One is assertory, that is to say, affirming something to be true. The other is promissory, bringing ourselves under obligation to do something or forbearing from doing something that we shouldn't do. The object of it must be a proper one and, as I've suggested, of great importance. And an oath must be interpreted in the plain, common, natural meaning of the words. To do so otherwise is to be dishonest. Unfortunately, we find a lot of this in Catholicism, where there is deceit that is used, and sometimes in cults, and perhaps in other circumstances as well, where words are used in a way that perhaps are ambiguous so that you can get away with what you are saying and you can fool people. That, of course, is wrong. And so to do so otherwise, to, let's say to take them in something other than the plain, common, natural meaning of the words, not only is dishonest, but it would be like the commander who promised the garrison of a besieged town that he would not drop, shed a drop of their blood if they surrendered. And then he had them buried alive. You get the point. Not very nice, right? Not very nice, not very honest. We all know, you all know what crossed fingers is, right? So, oh, you swear, but then you've got one set, of, one hand behind your back crossing, oh, then that, that lets you off the hook, right? No, it does not. Children, just, just to be aware, you know, it does not. All right. Now, an oath cannot, here's something that's important as we consider what an oath is. An oath cannot be carried out if the obligation is unlawful. In such cases, the sin lies in taking the oath, not in breaking it. So, for example, let's say you had pirates. Arg. You had pirates, okay, and they're, they're swearing an oath to each other that they will be loyal in their piracy. Well, that's wrong, isn't it? So the sin then is the fact of taking that oath and it would be sinful for them to carry out that oath, would it not? And so an oath cannot be carried out if the obligation is unlawful or sinful or a bunch of thieves. We're, gonna, we're going to rob this bank or we're going to conspire together. We're going we're to bind ourselves with an oath in terms of that. That is wrong and wicked. And therefore, the sin in that regard is not in breaking the oath. The sin is in taking the oath to start with. Nevertheless, and let me be clear here, nevertheless, when even where we may suffer temporal loss, we are still bound to keep it as long as it's something that is lawful. 
Is this not uh, what we find in Psalm 15, verse 4? Remember we had Psalm 15 as one of our Psalms of the Month uh, a few months ago. In Psalm 15, in verse 4, get it here. Psalm 15 and verse 4. Who may dwell in your holy hill? Verse 1. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor nor does he take up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So, oh, it's something inconvenient, perhaps. But you don't change what you have sworn. So as long as what you have sworn is indeed a lawful thing. And by the way, this this applies even when deceit is involved. If you look at Joshua chapter 9, remember the Gibeonites? In Joshua chapter 9, Verses 15 and 19. So Joshua made peace with them, with the Gibeonites, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. But the Gibeonites, you remember, had deceived them. But the Israelites had not consulted with the Lord in terms of whether they could make this treaty with the Gibeonites. Look at verse 19. After the deceit was exposed, then all the rulers... said to all the congregation we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel now therefore we may not touch them of course they go on to say nevertheless we'll, we'll let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them verse 21 let them live but let them be woodcutters and water carriers so hewers of wood and bearers of water for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them, basically uh, in a position of slavery, if you will. Uh, But nevertheless, they were not killed. And you know, it's interesting, in 2 Samuel, just to to finish that point, in 2 Samuel 21, in verse 1, um, uh, you remember that uh, Saul, King Saul, Um, had uh, killed the Gibeonites. And the Lord answered here, there's famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, David inquired of the Lord. The Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. In other words, even though this vow, this this oath was taken, was, was was involved deceit on the part of the Gibeonites. Once the Israelites had sworn that, they were bound to keep it. Well, so that is what an oath is. It is a swearing. It's calling upon God to confirm the truth or perhaps pledging us to do something or to refrain from doing what we shouldn't do. So who, then, is involved in oath-taking? Well, first of all, let us be clear God is involved. God is involved. An oath is an act of worship. God is involved. An oath 
implies an acknowledgement, first of all, of God's existence, that he actually is, that he actually uh, is present. Which, by the way, does raise interesting questions, does it not, in terms of our current justice system. Remember it used to be, so help me God? Well, on what basis does the justice system require us to tell the truth? other than simply uh, according to convenience or according to agreement between men. And so you see this is part of the problem that we have. No, we must acknowledge God. We must not be atheist or act as if we are atheist. And so even the taking of an oath, properly speaking, acknowledges God's existence, but it also acknowledges his attributes of omnipresence, he's everywhere present, so he's going to know whether you keep the oath or not, his omniscience, his justice, and his power. Because after all, the third commandment on which oath-taking is based says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. An oath implies the acknowledgement of God's moral government over the world, and also implies our accountability to him as our sovereign and judge. But not only is God involved, but men are involved too. We think especially of church elders and civil magistrates. Church elders and civil magistrates, as in courtroom settings, whether church court or civil or criminal Men are involved in administering those oaths. The person, by the way, taking the oath is involved and he must be competent, understanding what he is about to do. So who's involved? God's involved. Men are involved. Thirdly, why take an oath? Why take an oath? Well, oaths, obviously, first of all, are lawful. Oaths are lawful. And in that regard, I want to to point you to several scriptures. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 6. By the way, we're just scratching the surface today with regard to this. There's much more that could be said. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall... Take oaths in his name. You shall take oaths in his name. It implies that oaths are commanded upon occasion by God. Look at Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 16. Isaiah 65, verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth so again when you swear when you take an oath this is legitimate needs to be done in the name of God but the point is is that it is legitimate to swear an oath Jeremiah 4 verse 2 Jeremiah 4 and verse 2 Jeremiah 4 verse 2 which says 
and you shall swear the Lord lives. In truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, the blessing, the nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Chapter 12 of Jeremiah, verse 16. Chapter 12 of Jeremiah, verse 16. Chapter 12, verse 16. And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. So, again, the Bible is very clear that there is nothing wrong with swearing. Children, you often hear this idea, don't swear. But the thing is, what that means is, don't swear sinfully. Don't swear improperly. As a matter of fact, God himself is pictured as swearing. We sang it today, did we not? In Psalm 110, in the 110th Psalm, and verse 4, God himself swears. As we read in Psalm 110 and verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, it is for blessing that God often swears, does he not? We, we sang it again from Psalm 89. We sang a few moments ago, Psalm 89. Verses 34 and following. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips once I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and is thrown as the sun before me. And we even have Genesis chapter 15. Look at Genesis 15 just for a moment. This is, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning when you think about this. Genesis chapter 15. God, the Lord, is appearing to Abram in Genesis 15. He says to Abram, says to Abram, verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Verse 8, Abram says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit this land? Verse 9, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, to the Lord, cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the the birds in two. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then look at verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. 
on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and so forth. And that was a manifestation of the glory of God passing between the pieces of these animals. That's how seriously God took this. And so God himself is scriptured, is, is pictured as swearing, first of all, for blessing, but let us also be clear, also for or in judgment. Isaiah 44, verse 26. Isaiah 44 and verse 26. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited to the cities of Judah. I'm sorry, that was, I meant, it should be Jeremiah. Jeremiah 44, big part. Jeremiah 44, verse 26. Jeremiah 44, verse 26. Therefore, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God lives. God is giving them over, and he had sworn that in judgment to those whom he rejected. The same thing is true in chapter 49 of Jeremiah. Chapter 49, verse 13. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all its cities shall be perpetual waste. And chapter 51 of Jeremiah, verse 14. Chapter 51 and verse 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts, and they shall lift up a shout against you, against Babylon. As we come into the New Testament, as we come into the New Testament, we look at a passage like Romans chapter 14 and verse 11. Romans 14 and verse 11, where we read, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. You know what that's quoting? That's quoting the book of Isaiah, chapter 45 and verse 23. Now listen carefully. Listen carefully to the difference. Notice what Paul says, as I live, says the Lord. If you read back, if you go back to Isaiah 45, it says, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. In other words, God is binding up his own being, if you will, 
as I live, God says, I have sworn, in other words, he's bringing these things together. And he's saying I that this is who I am, that I am the God, and when I swear by myself, I am pledging myself and my very existence, my very being, on the fact that I will keep my word. Is that not what we saw in Genesis 15 in terms of the splitting apart of the animals? That was a symbol, you see. Why'd you, why divide the animals like that? It was a symbol of the person saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep covenant. And God is saying, as he goes, as he passes through those pieces, may this happen to me, as it were. Now, it's impossible for God to lie, as we read from Hebrews chapter 6 today. But you get the point. That that's how serious a matter this is. That God himself has sworn and has pledged and has guaranteed it in terms of who exactly he is as the one who does always tell the truth and the one who always keeps covenant. By the way, Jesus himself, you may remember, took an oath when required. Matthew 26, when the high priest laid an oath upon him. Well, Jesus was on trial. At that point, when the oath was laid on him, Jesus obeyed the law and confirmed. Yes, you shall see me as I come in judgment. This is who I am. And therefore, let us be clear that when Jesus says in Matthew 5 about not swearing, it doesn't mean forbidding all taking of oaths. The command you shall not kill does not forbid capital punishment. The Lord was obviously dealing with distortion, with perversions, in which swearing oaths was a common, everyday thing rather than a solemn act. But again, the matter is of such importance. This is why we take oaths. But not just that. Not just that. As I mentioned a moment ago, the reason for taking oaths and taking them so seriously, so significantly, is to emphasize the very seriousness of it, including that we are, when we take an oath, we are reflecting God's own swearing in his court, Genesis 15, when we swear. It's not just in terms of the seriousness of the matter that we're swearing about. But the fact that we are swearing also shows how significant and how seriously we must take this. Yes, especially in court, as little Tommy Mara would say, but not just because of the seriousness of the particulars, but the fact that we are in court and swearing in the name of God who passed through the pieces of those animals that were split apart. And so we see then what is an oath and who is involved and why take an oath and fourthly how to take an oath. You know, we often 
I'm sure you know from Scripture, you'll hear words like, the Lord do so to me and more also. Again, just what we're referring to. The Lord do so to me and more also. Or, as the Lord lives. Or, the Lord be a true and faithful witness. No matter what phrase is used, or so help me God, no matter what phrase is used, God is being appealed to as a witness. More than that, what do we usually do? We put left hand on the Bible many times, say that we're being faithful to God and to his word, but what do we do with the right hand? We lift it up. Why? We're lifting it to heaven. We're lifting it to heaven. It's an appeal to the God of heaven. We see this in Genesis 14.22, Daniel 12, verse 7, Revelation 10, the lifting either of the right hand or in some cases lifting the angel, for example, lifting both the right and the left hand, saying that there is an appeal to the God of heaven. That's why you raise the hand when you go into court. The Bible, as I said, is often used to show that the oath is being taken in the name of the God of the Bible and that the judgment invoked in the case of perjury is that which the Bible denounces against false swearing. Indeed, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, that's an oath. What about a vow? What is a vow? Well, a vow basically is simply a promise made to God. A promise made to God. It is used... Uh, the word vow is used 31 times in the Old Testament. Nadar is the word. We had as our uh, scripture reading earlier, Numbers chapter 30. And so we read in Numbers 30 and verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement and so forth. A vow, and there are many other places we could look at in terms of vows, the paying of vows. We find this, for example, in the Psalms. So what is, what, what is a vow all about? Well, first of all, it must be something lawful, just like an oath. You can't vow to do something that is wrong. It must be acceptable to God. It must be acceptable to God. It must be within our power. And this takes us then to the rest of Numbers chapter 30, because here you have the situation of a woman, starting in verse 3, a woman making a vow to the Lord or binding herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth. Now she can do that, but as we notice here, uh, as, as we'll see in just a moment, it can be uh, something that can be overruled by the father, under whose authority she is as a young woman, or by her husband, who hears it in that day and can, can say, you are not, I'm not going to recognize this, I'm not going to allow you to continue with this vow. So it must be it must be within our power to do, and it must be for our spiritual edification and good. 
who may make a vow. Someone who is competent. Someone who has sufficient intelligence. So you don't think of a six-year-old doing this. Uh, sufficient intelligence, sufficient age. And as I suggested a moment ago, of liberty, the ability to do it, not under someone else's authority, or if so, with the understanding that that person can be excused from that vow. Someone, by the way, who may make a vow, someone who does it voluntarily. A vow is not forced. An oath can be forced. A vow cannot be forced. It must be voluntary. Now, when to make a vow? Well, if you get married, that's one thing. By the way, that's another reason why we know that taking vows is not unbiblical, because people take vows when they get married. Also, by joining the church. When, what do we do when we join the church? We take membership vows. We, hear, we say we are promising to do certain things before the Lord and before his people. However, vows should not be needlessly multiplied or done on slight occasions, nor should they be allowed to interfere with Christian liberty. Sometimes you hear folks vowing poverty or vowing monasticism or some other such thing or celibacy. Those are not good vows to take. I will mention one other thing, and I'll um, call your attention to Isaiah chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 21, Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 21. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Now basically, what do we have here? We have what we call social uh, covenanting. Here, a national covenant. Indeed, we could even say an international covenant. As the Egyptians, as the Egyptians make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Isn't that interesting? And so we see then that vows are appropriate not just for individuals, but indeed for nations as well. Now, I have three points of application today. The first is this. Make sure that your word is your bond, even without having to swear an oath. You shouldn't have to swear an oath, but make sure that when you do, make sure that your word is your bond. That as in general terms, that you are keeping, that, that you are, are keeping the, the law of God and not telling untruths. Secondly, keep whatever you have sworn or vowed. Keep whatever you have sworn 
or vowed. And, and let me say, I, I've often said if I had a nickel for every time someone said, oh, yeah, I'll be in church today, preacher. Uh, I could have retired. We could have retired a long time ago. And the thing is, it's easy for us to look at others. But we also need to look at ourselves. Keep whatever you have sworn or vowed. Keep your membership vows. Those of you that are members, you said you would be faithful. Keep your vows. And thirdly, rejoice in the fact that you can have salvation because Christ kept his oaths and vows. In many religions, there is provision for oaths and vows. But only in Christianity is there a swearing by the true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who really exists, the one who really can hear, the one who really can act, the one who really will judge, Only in Christianity is there a swearing by the true triune God. Recognize that Jesus himself undertook his own vow for our salvation. In just a moment, we're going to sing a portion of Psalm 40. And I want to remind you of these words. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, my ears thou hast opened, burnt offering and sin offering thou didst not require. Then I said, behold, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, and thy law is within my heart. Jesus himself vowed that he would be a faithful son. Jesus himself vowed that he would be our savior. Jesus himself took his own vow for our salvation and is on that basis that we can have salvation and indeed on that basis that we can be strengthened in order to keep our own vows and oaths. The law requires the reverent use of oaths and vows. And someday, my friends, we will give account, not in a human court like little Tommy Mara, but in the very courtroom of God. Amen. We please stand for prayer. Now, Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would work powerfully in our hearts and lives and would apply this message to us. 
We pray, Father, that these words would penetrate deeply and that we would be able to understand more and more what it means to follow Christ and, indeed, more and more to rejoice in the salvation that he has accomplished through his own faithful keeping of his vow. So we thank thee for this. We thank thee that thou art the one who has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Thou art the one, O God, who has sworn and will not repent. We bless thee for that. In Jesus' name, amen.